Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text. And I'm only going to read the first three verses from John 14. Give your ear to God's gospel. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his blessings on the reading and preaching of this text. Father, we do ask for your help in learning and believing the truths that you have for us from your living word. And we pray that it would do its work in us as we meditate on this encouragement, but also command from our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said, I'm only going to read the first three. We're only going to go through the first three verses instead of the first six verses of John 14. I decided to have two sermons. So this is Truth for Troubled Souls, part one. Next week, we'll do Truth for Troubled Souls, part two. I thought it would be good to break this up. As Christians, what are we to do when our hearts are troubled? What do we do when life seems to be imploding, falling in on us? These aren't just fair questions. They're not even just good questions. They are essential, necessary questions. Disappointment is unavoidable. It's an unavoidable reality of life in, a fall, in this fallen world. We're often disappointed with ourselves sometimes disappointed with others, regularly disappointed with our circumstances. We want to be successful, but we face failures. We want to be accepted by colleagues who are cold toward us. You may be disappointed with your boss, or your husband, or your wife, or your child, or your parent, or your elders, or your business partner or your employees, or your civil authorities, or your teacher, or your clients. Or maybe your circumstances themselves are the source of your trouble. Some circumstances are within our control, but most are not. The loss of a job cannot always be avoided. The loss of a loved one is A devastating circumstance that's beyond our control. And especially unsettling trouble in our modern times is the uncertainty about the future. More than one of you have shared with me your temptation to anxiety about what lies ahead for you. Maybe you're not sure how you will support your family in the coming months or years. Or 
perhaps your health or the health of someone close to you has made you anxious about the future. The 11 disciples here in the upper room had cause for hearts that were troubled, for troubled hearts. Back in John 13, Jesus had dropped some big bombs on them. He told them that he was leaving. That's not what they expected. And that they couldn't come with him. He told at least some of them that in less than 24 hours, way less, really about in less than half a day, Judas would betray him and Peter would deny him three times. These first followers of Jesus were on the brink of despair. Probably every person in this sanctuary, if you live long enough, will experience what has been aptly called the dark night of the soul. When it feels as though God's presence and God's favor, even His love, have been withdrawn from you. When it seems as though God's promises don't apply to you in any meaningful way. And God's delight is not in you. How should you respond when life's troubles make it seem as though God is distant? As though God is not coming through? Or at least when you can't make sense of what he's doing. The late Presbyterian pastor James Montgomery Boyce asks a similar question, and he gives a simple but wise answer. He writes, what are we to do in such circumstances? What are we to do with despair? The answer is that we are to take ourselves in hand and by deliberate exercise of mind, strengthen our faith in God. We are to think of Him and so overcome trouble by reminding ourselves of the power and promises of God and by trusting in Him, end quote. He's, he's commenting on this verse here. When Jesus says in verse 1 of John 14, let not your heart be troubled, He's not saying there's nothing to be troubled by. Jesus Himself was troubled in soul. Just two chapters earlier in John 12, verse 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled in the previous chapter John 13 21 it says Jesus was troubled in spirit so at the beginning of John 14 here Jesus isn't denying that there are legitimate causes of a troubled heart but he's commanding us not to let that trouble drive us to sinful despair We are to take ourselves in hand and by a deliberate exercise of mind strengthen our faith in God. He's telling us what to do when life troubles us. We are to think of Him. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and so overcome trouble by reminding ourselves of the power and promises of God and by trusting in Him. Of course, the question is, how are we to do this? What does this look like? What does it mean to take yourself by the hand? Take yourself in hand and deliberately strengthen your faith in God. 
That seems too simple, too general, although that's really how Jesus starts off the passage because chiefly it means what Jesus says here in the second half of verse 1. It means to trust Jesus as your God. Look at the second half of verse 1. Believe in God or you believe in God, believe also in me. That's it. That's, That's the answer. That's the short version we could call it. And here Jesus links himself to the Father. He links himself with God, the Father. And so he makes himself an appropriate object of our faith, no less so than the Father is an appropriate object of our faith, the one that we put our faith in. Jesus is no less trustworthy than the Father because he is no less God than the Father. You see, the secret to a stable heart is contained right here in these last eight words or so in verse one. Trust in God, trust also in me. That's how to have an untroubled soul. That's what it boils down to. And if this seems, if it seems more complicated than that, then it's because we are complicating it because we are trusting in or leaning on or resting in something or someone other than God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Which is actually a very simple thing. Not an easy thing, but a simple thing. If we keep our hearts fixed on the power and the wisdom and the knowledge and the goodness, and the sovereignty of God. If we keep our eyes fixed on the author and completer, perfecter of our faith, our hearts will not be troubled, as they often are. But Jesus knew that we needed more than this. He, needed, he knew we needed more instruction on this matter. We need more truths to be believed to be meditated on. So he goes on to describe the kind of beliefs that will deliver our hearts from trouble. He goes on to flesh out this faith in God and in Jesus. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the word that gets translated mansions in this famous verse is an extremely rare word. In fact, it's only used twice in the entire New Testament. And both times, both appearances are in John 14. If you look down at verse 23, if you have your Bible, you should be open to John 14 and and look down verse 23 with me, and you'll see the second and only other instance of the word that gets translated mansions here. And this is going to help us understand what this word actually means. Verse 23 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The word home, there in verse 23, is the same word translated mansions in verse 2. It's just 
in the plural in verse 2. It's the only difference. And the meaning of this word is more general than mansions. It, it just means abode, dwelling place. And, and one of the problems with the traditional translation mansions is that it, it sort of strains the metaphor, doesn't it? it? It doesn't make a lot of sense, at least to our English speaking and hearing ears, to speak of many mansions existing inside a house. We're better off translating it dwelling place. Some translations say rooms to sort of keep the metaphor there. Because the Greek word behind this is a neutral term that just simply means place to live. So what's Jesus telling us here in verse 2 of John 14? He's saying that heaven, his father's dwelling place, is big. And it's big enough to house all believers. And Jesus has prepared a place there for every one of us. He's going to do this from the perspective of this passage. He has done it from our perspective. An effective remedy for your troubled heart is believing that Jesus Christ has prepared a place for you as an individual with Him in heaven, with the Father. If you're a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, your eternal abode is waiting on you. It's where you'll go when you die. It'll continue to be your dwelling place in the new heavens and the new earth. It's where you will live forever. If there's a more comforting, calming, encouraging, hope-filled verse in the New Testament, I don't know what it is. Here Jesus meets us at our deepest longing. He meets us at our deepest desire, which is heaven, which is paradise, which is God's home. That's our deepest longing. C.S. Lewis understood this built-in desire for heaven that all of us have. He called it our inconsolable longing. In his book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis wrote, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want. The thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work, end quote. Each of us has an inborn longing for the glory of God's heavenly house, a desire to live with God in His immediate presence, in heaven. Attempts to create heaven in this world always 
fail. On the one hand, they, they show this inconsolable longing that C.S. Lewis speaks of, but on the other hand, they always fail. Utopian philosophies never work. They always fall flat. Marxism promises an ideal society, heaven on earth. But all it gives us is more injustice and economic woe. There's only one place where our unsatisfied longing will be fulfilled, and Jesus tells us where it is. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. One of these dwelling places is yours, if you know and love Jesus. He's prepared a permanent place for you. So when life implodes, when worries assail you, meditate on your eternal home. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's the idea. In 1 Peter 1, 3, Peter refers to this as our living hope. And in the next verse, in verse 4 of 1 Peter 1, he expands on what this living hope is. He calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. To fight off trouble, your heart must realize in its depths that an everlasting place awaits you. It awaits those who trust in Jesus. It is the reward of those who follow Christ all the way to the end of their lives. Now, some may and have called this sort of thinking spiritual escapism. The worry is that if we talk so much of heaven, the world to come, then we'll become so heavenly minded that we'll be of no earthly good. But I don't see how such a thing is possible scripturally. It's possible perhaps to be so religious that we're of no earthly good, or so pietistic that we are of no earthly good. It's possible to be so idealistic that we are of no earthly good. It's possible to be so triumphalist that we are of no earthly good, but it's not possible to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3 specifically, to set our minds on things above, where Christ is. And Christ is in heaven, rather than on things on the earth. Paul thought a lot about heaven. God even gave Paul a vision of heaven which perhaps made Paul long for it even more than he did before. In Philippians 1.23, Paul tells the Philippian Christians plainly, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He's equally clear in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He writes, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
important for us to remember this perspective and to have it. And, and note that Paul was of great earthly good. In fact, he was of so much earthly good because he was so heavenly minded. In recent years, it's become somewhat fashionable among some theologians to downplay heaven, the hope of heaven. Some say that instead of longing to go to heaven when we die, we should be anticipating the new heavens and the new earth and our resurrection from the dead on the last day when Jesus returns. But, but I ask, why must it be either or? Our hope is in both. And I see no such dichotomy in Scripture. Our, our passage this morning touches on both. In verse 2, Jesus points to our heavenly home with God, which exists now. It's been prepared already, and we will go there and experience it when we die. And then verse 3, which we'll get to in just a minute, points to the return of Christ at the end of history, at the last trumpet, when living believers will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and then taken to their eternal home with God for the first time ever. And we could say that is the ultimate hope, the resurrection at the end. But the intermediate state, our time in heaven on the way there, is nothing to scoff at or to downplay. It's something to look forward to. The reality of your heavenly abode helps you guard your heart against trouble. That's why it's important for us to not downplay it. Because it helps you guard your heart against being troubled. If it's a reality for you, then it can help you in this way. And so is it? Is this heavenly dwelling place real to you? Is it an aspect of your Christian hope? The way it was for Paul. Is it the fulfillment of your inconsolable longing? You'll notice in one of those passages that I quoted from Paul, he clearly expresses what his desire is, but he goes on to say, but, but I know... My time has not yet come, and I know that I need to stay for your sake. In other words, I still have work to be done. There's, there's still work to be done. I still have work to do. God still has work for me to do. And that's the right balance that we ought to have. Longing, hope, desire, being honest with that, about that desire, but being willing to do whatever work God has for us on this earth, in this world, for his kingdom, as long as he has us here. This inconsolable longing is well uh, documented in, at, in the life of Puritan Henry Venn, especially at the end of his life. 
as he neared its end, then became noticeably excited to those around him about the prospect of dying because he understood these truths that we're talking about. He knew that he what was on the other side of his death. And his doctor, in the biography of Henry Venn, his doctor said that he became so high-spirited and jubilant that his joy at dying kept him alive another two weeks. At least that was his doctor's perspective. So knowing your destiny, knowing what God has prepared for you, knowing what awaits you in the life to come and then in the world to come after the resurrection is a source of joy and peace for you now in this life. It's also an incentive for godly living. Now, there's sort of a conundrum here in this verse. If you, if you read it carefully and, and think through the logic, notice in verse 2 that Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for his disciples. Now, this might, this might seem awkward at first because Jesus has just said that many dwelling places already exist in God's house. So if there are many dwelling places in heaven already, why does Jesus need to go and prepare places for us? And this brings us to the most misunderstood phrase in this passage, I think. Jesus isn't saying that when he gets to heaven, then he's going to start preparing places that don't yet exist. They don't exist now, but they will. They already exist. The text makes it clear that they already exist before Jesus gets there. He hasn't prepared them, so so we've got to figure out what that means. They exist, but they haven't been prepared. What's that mean? Well, in Augustine's comments on this verse, he said rightly that in a certain sense, Jesus is preparing the dwelling places by preparing those who dwell in them. In his death and resurrection and ascension, his going, Jesus prepared a place for us by preparing us for the place. We weren't fit for this pla- these places. The atonement of Christ prepares a place for us to dwell in God's presence in that it makes a way for us to dwell in God's presence. So Jesus Returned to heaven, he went to heaven by way of the cross to prepare a place for us there. Hebrews 10, 14 says that by one offering, by one sacrifice for sins, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's us. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross has perfected us and is sanctifying us. Without the cross, there would be no place in heaven for any of us. The cross is our provision of everlasting life. It provides us an eternal dwelling with God. We could say it this way. Jesus prepared a place for us by taking away the sin 
that separated us from God and his house. Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's house, his sanctuary, his temple, the garden, when they sinned. And in the rest of the Old Testament, humanity, even Israel to some extent, is on the outside, outside the most holy place, outside of God's house. But Jesus has prepared a place for us in that innermost sanctuary by taking away the sin that separates us from God and his presence, his house. This interpretation of this passage arises from the text when we examine it carefully. In John's gospel, we really have to examine the whole gospel. In John's gospel, the going of Jesus is always a reference to his returning to the Father, but not just his going from earth to heaven, from A to B. It refers to his going back to the Father by way of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. The going of Jesus back to heaven is how God's people are saved. Because on his way back to heaven, Jesus will die and be buried and rise from the dead and ascend to God's right hand. So the going of Jesus is is full. It's, It's full of redemptive significance. It's a pregnant term. One commentator puts it this way. Jesus is not merely going to prepare a place for the going is itself the preparation. The term going has become a technical term in the gospel for the final journey of the mission of the Son. The cross, resurrection, and ascension to the Father is the preparation. It is the provision of permanent dwelling with God. End quote. And then verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. This verse contains one of John's famous I am statements. Where I am, there you may be also. Jesus once again identifies himself with God, with Yahweh, with the great I am. But look what else is going on here in verse 3. Jesus identifies our dwelling place as what? This is why it's important for us to kind of get mansions and, and all the connotations that mansions has in our language out of our minds. What is our dwelling place? How does he identify it? He identifies it as God himself. Now, I'm not saying that this isn't a, a real place and in some sense a physical place. It's not... I'm, I, We don't want to just spiritualize this completely. But Jesus is identifying this place in heaven where we're going that's been prepared for us most fundamentally as God, the presence of God, 
being with God. And so this is the key to these three verses. It brings the, it brings the whole passage into sharp focus. Jesus is not inviting you to envision a 20-room mansion with lush gardens and an indoor basketball courts. He's inviting you to envision God himself as your eternal dwelling place. Jesus' ultimate goal for you is to be with him forever. That's the logic of this verse. Your primary purpose is to be with the great I am in glory. You exist to be with the one who eternally is. John 14.3 is the most explicit reference to the second coming in all four Gospels. Christ is coming back to earth physically, bodily. And when he returns, he'll receive all of his people to himself. And at that point, we'll all have our resurrection bodies, just as Jesus already has his. Paul describes this future day in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Then he goes on to say, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with the promise of resurrection and always being with Jesus forever. Fellow believers, fellow Christians, we must work hard to maintain this long-range heavenly perspective that this passage and other passages call us to. Because there's a constant pull on us, a constant tug on us in the opposite direction toward the things on the earth. But we must set our minds on the things that are above, where Christ is, and where we will be and live forever. Let me read to you Colossians 3, 1-4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. So, are you, are you beginning to see how Christ-centered and heavenly-minded Paul is here? 
And by the way, those two things go together. Christ-centered and heavenly-minded. Heaven is where Christ is, and heaven is where we will be also. In this passage from Colossians 3, the first four verses, Paul wants you, he, he wants your mind to be focused on the place where you will appear with Jesus someday in glory. Glory is where Christ is. Glory is where your life is now hidden. Glory is where your citizenship is. Glory is where you will be fully when you die. Glory is where your new body will appear when Jesus returns and brings glory with him. In glory, Paul says. Our tendency to focus on the things of earth can even work its way into our theology if we're not careful. You can know this has happened to you when you find yourself reducing the goals of the kingdom of God to certain political goals or economic goals or social goals. We must never reduce the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, to a certain vision of an idealized earth. If we do that, then we're just creating another religious utopia that distracts us from biblical piety and heavenly hope. One theologian puts it somewhat provocatively. Just as the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not of this world, so also it is not restricted to this world. Our ultimate goal, keep that word ultimate in mind, our ultimate goal is not the transformation of society. As valuable as that may be, our ultimate goal is pure worship and the unrestricted presence of God. End quote. That's the ultimate goal here in this passage. Now, it, it, it's not, that's not to say that there aren't other goals, that there aren't other jobs that we have to do. Paul was quite aware of his duty as a missionary, as an apostle, to preach the gospel to go to the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. We certainly need to see part of our calling as Christians, as, as ambassadors, as citizens of heaven who have been put here as transforming our culture, doing our part to bring all things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But just as our psalm said that we read responsively, there's one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. And to let God take care of the rest. 
including our good jobs that we have to do. Our ultimate goal is summarized well in John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Christian's goal, clearly, in Pilgrim's Progress is the celestial city, the holy city, the heavenly city, the city of God. Those are terms used to refer to it. Where Christian will enjoy pure worship in the unrestricted presence of God. Now, of course, as I said, we can and should acknowledge other important goals like the transformation of culture, of society. But there is and can only be one ultimate goal. And our ultimate goal should be the same as our ultimate longing, our deepest longing, our deepest desire. To be with God, to be where Jesus is, and to worship Him in His Unrestricted presence, as the one theologian put it. So, fellow Christians, it is this truth is vital. It's vital to your walk with the Lord. It's vital to your untroubled heart. It's vital to our health as a church. It's vital for our successful accomplishment of the Great Commission. It's vital for us if we want to do the work that God has called us to do on this earth. If we want to be of any earthly good, we must be heavenly minded. It's vital that you set your heart and mind on the place where you are a citizen. This will keep you from being troubled. It'll keep you from becoming distracted in your duties on this earth. It'll keep your priorities from becoming misaligned. The Lord Jesus Christ was of so much earthly good precisely because... He was so heavenly minded. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calming our troubled hearts with your presence. And we thank you that even now, while we're in this life, in this fallen world, you are present with us by your Spirit. Help us to trust in you, Father. Help us to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. And strengthen our hearts so that we have the kind of faith that Paul had, the kind of heavenly vision that Paul had, so that we can know you better, so that we can delight in you more and so that we can do our work more fruitfully, more effectively, more faithfully, so that we can produce more joy and more peace and all the other fruit of the Holy Spirit while we're in this life.
fill our hearts with the hope of heaven and with the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.